Welcome back to How They Train. Today I'm joined by Julian Spence. Jules is a 2.14 marathoner who represented Australia at the 2019 World Champs for the marathon. He is one of Australia's leading shoe dogs and owns the running company Ballarat, which is one of Australia's biggest run specialty stores. Jules is a host of the Inside Running podcast, where he's known as the wise, grumpy, beer-drinking moose. He's the head coach of Olympian Ali Pashi and new dad to little Pia. Not many people think as much or as deeply about running as Jules. He has a running book collection that if you stacked it on top of each other, would probably be tall in the Eiffel Tower, and I reckon he's pretty much read them all. It's always a real treat to sit back and listen to Jules' thoughts and philosophies around training. He's also a really good friend and, and mentor of mine. Jules, thanks for jumping on, mate. It's, uh, it's weird to think that we're here doing this, isn't it? Yeah, well, thanks for having me, and um, kudos to you for getting this podcast up and running because it is been a great collection so far of guests and um, I'm kind of feeling a little humbled to be on it after listening to to say Craig Alexander and and Chris McCormack and all the other guys that I've I've kind of known about and um, have been famous so this is yeah it's a little bit of an honor to be on here. Yeah I wonder I wonder where you do sit on uh, list of best athletes I've had on the show so far from from 13 episodes. Well I'm the fastest runner. <laughs> uh, I reckon uh, I reckon that's probably true, but it's only because those guys don't run full time. You'd probably be number thirteen if it wasn't for that. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Ironman triathletes, you put them, take out the bike, and they're running two eleven. That's what. That's what. <laughs> that's how it goes in the trial world, right? Yeah, yeah. On a thirty nine point eight k marathon course. <laughs> no, well, these days it is a little scary to see what uh, what what those triathletes can do running as soon as one of them went to the track that i remember the day because it ruined my argument forever that triathletes couldn't run um one of the Brownlee brothers that ran like 28 40 at the stanford 10k and after that i was like shit they're all better than me now yeah that was alistair i, I think it was like 28 30 something yeah and uh and he was like oh yeah i might just go to go to the com games for the 10k i just said it like it's nothing yeah, yeah. And now you've got Morgan Pearson running like 60 minutes for a half marathon, beating professional runners daily. Uh, that's scary. That's, yeah, yeah. The, the argument's over where like <laughs> they can run. And Alex Yee, like he's, he's been a, a finalist at like um, Diamond League yeah. 5K and that sort of thing. And he's not even the best runner in the sport. It's pretty crazy. No, yeah. The, the Olympic 10K, just watching. Oh, well, the 10K triathlon or whatever you call it. Sorry, the 10K <laughs> run. I just watched the run. Um, <laughs> everyone had picked him, right? Like I was asking during the run, I'm like, who's going to win this? And and everyone said, Alex Eagle, he's the best runner. But then the, the other fellow who just seemed to grit it out a bit more came through. That was pretty cool to watch. Yeah, Christian Blumenfeld. I had, uh, that was one of the best bets I made of, of 20, 2021. I, um, I put 500 bucks on him to win at seven bucks 50. It was uh, one of the best bet returns I've ever had. And so I was a bit worried because Christian's one of those guys who he's like, it's, you look at him when he's running and he just looks like a, like a chubby little man. Mm. And you see him next to like Alex Yee and Hayden Wild, who are like 40 kilo rakes who just look like natural runners. Um, But it just looked like Christian, like literally almost killed himself to win that. Um, Pretty impressive. It did. It did. He, he, you think he would be good at cross country just watching him run. Like this guy would be good over hills. He'd be good in a real grinding type situation. Yeah, and he'd be the guy who, like, when you cross the line, you look at everyone. He'd have the most mud on his face and yeah. like spit on his face and shirt and spew on his shirt. Still, your sport had to go and make it weird with that white suit. 
<laughs> you know, when it started, it was worse than that. They, they had like, it, it ended up having that like black speedo section to it, but pr- like the first version of it didn't even really had that. Have oh, that. No. And no, it was bad. It was a Pete Kerr all over again. <laughs> I still have that photo of Pete Kerr to bring out at any given time. Yeah, me too. I have about 40 <laughs> photos on my phone and Pete Kerr, Kerr's penis is one of them. <laughs> hey, uh, how's your training going at the moment, Jules? Uh, it's getting back there. I had a like arthroscope and lateral release on my right knee in uh, early September. Um, so I've just been building the mileage back and doing the physio for that. And last week nearly ran 130K for the week. So that's, that's really good for me. I think it's about 15, 16 weeks post-surgery. So it's starting to get there. Fitness is at the point where I'm tired now. The mileage is sort of enough and the heat at the moment is enough to make me tired day in, day out. So my workouts aren't going great. And the, like the, bit, the weeks that I've been doing haven't really accumulated to where I've got fit yet. So I'm just in this like fatigued, beat up phase where nothing's really looking great or feeling awesome. But I know it's, I know it's probably only four to six weeks away from sort of starting to click. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I've actually been like holding off asking you some questions that I probably would have asked you in private if I didn't know you were going to come on the podcast eventually. Because um, I'm really interested in, in your career. You, I sort of have known you before you were like this, uh, this guy who was big in the running world and you were a great runner. Like you'd, you'd, you'd won a couple of um, pretty big marathons and, and your marathon PB wasn't bad. It was like in the 220s. Um, and, and then like sort of over the last five years since you, um, you know, started owning your own um, running company store and, and taking your training a little bit more, uh, like you always took it seriously, but it, it's, it's sort of like there was this shift where you, you went from being a very good runner to a professional runner almost in, in your mindset. Um, and then you achieved all these things that I don't think many people would have thought you would, would have achieved. Like I don't think many people would have looked at you as a 214 marathoner or a guy who would, who would represent Australia at the world champs, but, but you achieved all of that. Um, and then you've gone through a little bit of a patch now where you, you've had some injuries and, and you know, you're getting a little bit older and so I'm, what I'm really curious about is, is now you're getting back into it. What's the goal? Like, what do you still have left that you want to achieve? What, what, what gets you up in the morning to train that sort of thing? Well, in my mind, I can still do it. So in, in my mind, and this is, I think the way that you have to be, otherwise what's the point in, in getting up and even trying is that i I know I can get back to where I was. I, I've, I, it, I've just got a new knee. And part of what was holding me back at the end of 2020 uh, and early 2021 was, was my knee and I couldn't run with a, with a gait that was natural and I was pulling up sore from it and it was creating niggles elsewhere, like, I, like in my Achilles and stuff. So now I'm looking at sort of the, the potential that I have to, to actually run faster and, and with more volume and... Um, more efficiently, more economically. So for me, I'm actually excited to see where I can, where I can get back to, because I still think that I can get, get back to 214 shape. Uh, I, I was the fittest I've ever been in early 2020 when the, um, when COVID sort of hit and everything. And I was entered London marathon. And I remember doing workouts that just were so far ahead of what I've done in the past. Uh, and then, um, so that was only like, that was, well, that was two years ago now. 
And so it's sort of come, <laughs> come and gone a little bit. Like I've gone through phases since then, but I haven't really lost the confidence or belief that I can get back there. And so that's what keeps me getting out there. And um, the day that I lose that will be the day that I'll start doing other things like picking up hobbies or that, that kind of stuff, but I'm not there yet. And, and do you have like a, um, in your head, is there a clear way that this is going to happen? So do you have like races picked out that you want to try and hit and, and, um, and like, you know, are you already thinking about when that might be? I have like blocks picked out. So my return to, to sort of fitness, it only comes through going through a process of having a certain lifestyle and having a mindset or a, a process that I go through. So I'm not just going to wake up in 10 weeks and be fit. I have to basically implement like a formula or a routine day in, day out that gets me there. So what I've picked out is timeframes where at the end of this process or at the end of this big block of daily routine that I'll be fit enough to start looking at doing some races so for me, I know, and, and this is cliche as anything, but process goals for me at the moment about getting back to an elite lifestyle, that's where I'm at. And then I know if I can spend, say, three months in that, in that routine of, of waking up, training, um, basically just focusing 100% on training, then, uh, then I know I'll, I'll come out of that 12 weeks with a baseline fitness where then I can, I can put a 10-week block in and, and aim for a marathon. But uh, I'm, I'm hesitant. I think when you pick out goals before you've achieved that uh, two to two to three month block of baseline stuff, if you, then you start rushing everything because you think it might take two to three week, oh, two to three months, but maybe it takes four to six months to get back to that baseline. And so I don't pick out races until I've achieved that. And and I haven't. I've always had a baseline for like 2017, 18, 19. It's all been baseline, so I can sort of go from race to race. But because I've missed the extended period, I have to get back to that level that I can springboard from. And you can't rush that rebuild. So that's where I'm at right now. Yeah, and a question I have about this, this is a question I've never asked you, but I've actually always wanted to. So when I first met you, which was probably about you know five, six years ago, um, you sort of had this body where you looked like a, a fit tradie who would run or like a, a guy who played footy five years ago and had got into his running. Whereas now when you've been training a little bit, like you look like a runner, like you're super lean, you got veins popping through your legs and your arms, you're way more tanned. Like you just, you look like a professional runner now, whereas you never used to. And just then I heard you talk about like um, how you want to start getting back into this, this daily routine of elite habits and, and an elite lifestyle that, that, that makes you the best runner you are. So can you take me like, a little bit more deeply into what that actually entails? Yeah. So, uh, well, basically on a day-to-day basis, it's waking up and prioritizing your day around becoming a better athlete. So waking up at a time where you've got adequate sleep the night before. And then as soon as you wake up thinking about that first run and how am I going to prepare for that? So whether it's activation exercises, whether it's, some nutrition before you go out, whether it's driving 15 minutes to get to a location that's going to be a better place to run than straight out of your door. Um, And then planning the day around that. So 
obviously after that you need maybe some time to recover or rest before you like we still work so um we're not there so you've got to sort of plan the, the work day but you can still uh, allow time around that for recovering properly and um and then even during the day like eating properly so not just eating whatever's closest to you but planning that out a little bit and uh hydrating throughout the day and and then that in the afternoon um obviously we train twice a day like there's no reason why we can't train twice a day whether it's running or cross training or gym um like i look at a lot a lot of triathletes and go well these guys are training twice a day no problems um these runners can certainly do that even if it's topping up aerobic work and so yeah in that afternoon for me it's about prioritizing the second run so whether it's a workout or an easy run again finding the right location doing those activation exercises running exactly to what to the purpose of the workout so not just going out and like if it's a recovery run oh it's really hot and hilly i'm going to go run over hills in the heat like that's compromising the purpose of that day the purpose was to recover so i'm actually going to run flat i'm going to run shaded i'm going to run with a hat on with sunscreen that kind of stuff whereas if it's a day where i am supposed to add some stress well okay let's let's go out let's drive to the trails let's run on dirt roads that are hilly because today is a day that i want to add that stress because that's the purpose of the run so for me it's sort of working out the purpose for the run and then doing everything within my power to to optimize that workout that training day um and then again that night like bed early it's 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 actually quite a boring life but it's it's only boring if you enjoy the other stuff which i really didn't that much i enjoyed training and and so for me i i really liked it yeah i i, I would do everything i could to make my runs the best that they were for that day even if it's a recovery day i wanted to nail that recovery run um, and just basically hit the heart rate I wanted and recover as best I could. Yeah, lots to unpack there. So with your with your food, because you brought that up a couple of times, like maybe fueling before runs and and then, you know, throughout the day prioritizing getting the right food in, um, do you have specific like things that you eat or like a, a diet that you follow? And, and like you mentioned that you eat, you might eat before runs. Do you eat before every run you do? And um, yeah, walk me through your philosophies with with diet. Well, mainly because I'm at work, I, I don't eat enough. So I was a lot of like my energy, some of my bad weeks of training, we, we identified that it, I just wasn't getting enough food during the day. And so I would, I would run in the morning. So I guess before the run, I, would, I wouldn't eat anything. I would have a coffee and run. And it might be 70 minute, 80 minute run. And then I would have breakfast when I got back, go to work. And when I was at work, I was kind of on and I didn't really have a lot of time to, to, well, I wasn't making time to eat and I would just grab small little things throughout the day. And then I'll get to the afternoon run. And because I'm running, like, and I don't want anything in my stomach, I would try not to eat too much through the afternoon. And what that, where that would leave me was in a depleted state. And so I'll get to the afternoon run and just be cooked. So I was, I was starting the workout depleted. I wasn't fully recovered from the morning. And so it was just introducing more calories during the day and more carbohydrate. I was getting the protein in. So it was, it was more things like I might have some, um, like a bagel in the afternoon. 
uh, started to eat like little packets of popcorn, toast. What else was I having? Even just a sports drink, like with sugar in it, um, just to get up the cal- just to get up the carbohydrate because. I was running a lot, like 180 kilometers a week was sort of my average during most of the training blocks that, that went well for me. And, and I was eating as if I was it, it, the same amount that when I was running 100K a week, I didn't change my diet at all. Uh, and, and that's just like when you look back, you go, that's crazy. <laughs> you're burning so much more, but you're not putting as much in. So, yeah, I, I worked that out and I felt so much better after I started eating more. Yeah. And with the changes that you saw, mainly just that when you were running, you were feeling like um, not as lethargic, not as, not as sort of beat down or, or did you see other changes from, from that? I probably, like, I reckon I, I started to lean out when I ate more. So when I increased, when I went and saw a dietitian or, or had a consult with a dietitian and um, worked out that I needed more calories and, and, and that included eating before my run. So like I would wake up and I would wake up earlier and I would have a bowl of oats, uh, and then then I would run, and and I would increase like how much I ate afterwards, uh, and then during the day just yeah more calories, and then probably a bigger meal, and then before bed I might even have some some more um, food as well, and and I found like I did lean down from that, which is sort of counterintuitive, but it just sort of means that my body wasn't. I mean, this is how I understand it. Just starting trying to store fat, like being like fully depleted state all the time, um, trying to hold on to whatever it had. Yeah. Well, they, that's, that's sort of like the the modern thinking, isn't it? Or the modern research is that if you actually do like sort of um, restrict your eating a bit, particularly as a as an endurance athlete, that your cortisol is so high that you do store a little bit of, of extra body mm-hmm. fat than what you do if you actually fuel properly. So it is counterintuitive. It was a bit depressing when you're running, always feeling shit too. Yeah. So you, especially in the afternoon runs, because you'd finish work. You, I was blaming it on work, just like going, oh, I'm tired from work. <laughs> but it wasn't that. It was it was just not enough food. Yeah. And um, a few other things you mentioned in there. So you said like the like we a lot, we figured this out. Do you have like a team that, that helps you, um, like coaches or you mentioned a dietitian? Well, what's uh, what like who are the people that sort of help you be the best version of you? Yeah, uh, well, I went to a dietitian when, uh, like, I've been to a couple now, um, or I haven't actually been to one, but like, you can do diet, dietitian consults on online. And I normally go when I have a problem. So I normally go when I'm feeling like um, something's wrong. So I was getting stomach issues when I was on a training camp. And then I went to it, like, that's when I consulted with a dietitian there. And um, and we work through that. I don't really have a team that I go to all the time, to be honest. Um, I've got a physio, Ali, who has helped me with some of my training as well in the past. Um, so, I've, well, she's been on your show, Ali Pashley. So she'll give advice when, when I have injuries, that kind of stuff. And I've got Bree, my wife, who does all the cooking in the house, like all the cooking. Um, <laughs> and, and, and so she, she's a really healthy person herself. And, and she'll accommodate my like extra calorie needs by, by cooking rice or something when she wouldn't normally have that. So, yeah, I, I, I honestly am a pretty independent sort of athlete. Um, I don't really feel like I have a team around because I like to do a lot of my own reading and thinking. And um, I, like the training group's different. I love joining the group. So in Ballarat, that was probably one of the big differences in like when I got there, I was a two 
25 maybe runner and rocked up to the group with with Mona and and Collis and Nath Hardigan and Ash Watson and and they didn't really like they would they looked at a 225 and go that's actually that shit and <laughs> you you won gradation mode marathon but no one races that so it's it's irrelevant no one cares if you win that and just realizing that the like the ceiling for what's considered um, success and what's considered mediocre is really different in training group to training group. Um, I'd say that was probably one of the biggest factors in, in me jumping up to the next level because I knew mediocrity wasn't really celebrated within the group I was with at the time. And there was a whole different definition of making it or being successful. And it's, it was almost like an instant eye opener going, okay, well, 225 was good in the group that I was in and it won a couple of local races. But in order to get respect in this group, you need to pretty much put on an Australian singlet and, and race in big city races, which uh, Monar obviously drives that culture. And he, it doesn't like, he's a man of the people, Monar. So he's like, he's king of everyone, front, back and, and middle packer. But when you get him maybe on his own a little more, he's a lot more harsh and, and unforgiving with, with his reviews on, on certain races. And he was like that. He was like that with me. And I think it was probably the best thing that, that he could do for me is sort of explain how what I was doing wasn't really worthy of celebrating. And, and in order to, to be good, I've, I've got to start, <laughs> I guess, picking the, picking the, um, the, the bigger races and putting myself out there more and running faster times and, and training more. And, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, it, it came down to mileage for me. I needed to train more and, and that's what I did. And, um, he was a big part of that. And your philosophies around that, like I've obviously had heaps of conversation with you about this. Um, and I, I know people will be interested in it. So pre like pre coming to Ballarat, which is known as like a bit of a running Mecca in Australia, obviously driven by Mona and, and a lot of names that have that have been training here through you know, like the last 40, 50 years. Um, what were your philosophies before coming here and then did they change afterwards when you, you got in like in touch and, and started running with Mona and his group and, and heard about like how they used to train and how has it like, ch- like changed over time and, and got to like the point where you're, you know, sort of steadfast in, in what you believe now and, and what you know works for you to get the best out of yourself uh, in the marathon and, and across all distances really. Yeah, that's, that's probably where there was a little bit of like division within the group because I did have a, a different philosophy on what I thought worked for marathoning. And, and I sort of proved with my own running that it, it did work. And then at the same time, Mono had proved with that, that what he did worked as well. So um, we always sort of had debates on what we considered was the, the right way to train for a marathon. Um, and in my head, like I was probably a little bit more, um, oh, I was quite logical about how I went about it. I thought, so I would look at the marathon and work, I worked out sort of the, the limitations, like why do people struggle in the marathon? What are the things that like slow people down? And then I like try to address those factors with training. And, and I'm not the first to do that. There's a, there's a lot of coaches out there that have done that before. And I've, I've grabbed a lot of like the f- different things from different philosophies from coaches. Like 
I, like, my, like my overall philosophy is, is not unique in that I've come up with it on my own. It's basically just a selection of different people's thoughts and, and what I consider smart and what I consider beneficial to marathon training and, and how to structure a, a program for a marathon and how to structure a year and how to develop as a runner is pretty much just taking a lot of different people's ideas and, and things that I really enjoyed from it and piecing it together to form my own sort of philosophy. And a philosophy, like I don't understand how someone operates without a philosophy because every time you go to make a decision around training, the philosophy has to influence that decision. And if you just rock up to training and you don't really have a philosophy or, or have a, a series of like a hierarchy of, of principles or anything, then how would you make any decision around what to do? And how would you structure any type of training? So like we are all different. We all respond to different things. And I understand that. And, and some people like a fast twitch and slow twitch and others enjoy, like they have different gait patterns and their economy rates are different or whatever. But at the end of the day, we're all humans as well. And we all have heart, lungs, muscles, um, we all run in a certain way and I just sort of, you've got to draw a line in the sand at some point and go, well, this is my philosophy and, um, it might not work for everybody, but I know it works for me and I know it works for, for humans that have my, like a similar, similar physiology to me. And, and that's, that's how I'm going to train. And, um, that's how I'm going to sort of help train people as well. So I, I always struggle when a coach says, oh, everyone's very, really different. So we train everybody differently depending on their strengths and weaknesses. I'm like, that must be really difficult to work, to try to work out someone's strengths and weaknesses like in a short period of time and then throw different training at them, see if they respond. If they don't, change it up. I'm like, you gotta, you got to be patient. You have to like commit to something and, and basically just like back it in. And if it doesn't work over a long period, then that's not right for them. That's cool. They'll move on. But you can't just chop and change all the time. And do you think you could like um, briefly sum up what your philosophy is? Well, I have a hierarchy of principles. So that's kind of, that's how I sum it up. So like I have, I think it's five or six things where there's a matter of importance placed on the list so at the, at the very top is enjoyment so if anything if we do anything underneath the position above that affects it it's not worth doing so at the top is enjoyment and if you're not enjoying training you're not going to get better the second thing is consistency so that is the most boring thing ever but it is the absolute key and every one of the interviews i've listened on your podcast everyone's mentioned consistency as the key for their best races and when they talk about their blocks before whatever race, it's like, yeah, I was really consistent. I had a good year. It's not talking about weeks or months. It's talking about almost years of training leading into that race. So consistency. And then the third is volume. Like the marathon is an aerobic event. And a lot of it comes down to fatigue and leg, like leg fatigue. And uh, we get the most out of ourselves if, if volume's a priority especially for, for marathoners. And then a variety of workouts is underneath that. So having an overall stronger athlete. So that means um, doing threshold work, doing longer aerobic tempos, long runs, I mean doing VO2 max workouts, 
Uh, it means like basically peppering every system, every one of our physiological systems. And then underneath that, as we get a little bit more advanced, we go more specific with our training. So leading into a marathon, uh, looking at specific requirements for the event, for the pace that you'll run, um, for like the weather, the hills, the surface, the nutrition. So training specifically for that event. And then at the bottom is something that I think is gets massively overplayed at the moment is the 1% stuff. So strength training, um, technique training, that kind of stuff. That's the stuff that comes at the very bottom that we, we, we think about when we're covering all of the above steps. And, and basically I put a circle around it and go rest and recovery. So every one of these needs to be followed by rest and recovery. So that's it. That's, that's the hierarchy that I kind of live by. And every time it comes to making a decision on someone's training or my own training, I look at the hierarchy and go, what's more important here? It's um, it's quite like a weird thing that happens in, in particularly the endurance training community is that everyone's looking for a shortcut. Like everyone sees a new product that comes out that, that a professional athlete's using, like I've got to have that. Or, you know, they hear someone say, well, I've started fasting or I've gone gluten-free and that's made me faster. Mm. Oh, I've got to do that. And it's just, it's just interesting to hear an athlete of your caliber, a, a guy who's so smart and thinks about the sport so logically and, and has got so much out of himself say that, hey, if there's a pyramid and, and we're going from most important to least important, that, that shit is least important. And what's important is the hard stuff is consistently over months and years doing the work, volume, and, and they're the things that sort of maybe sometimes get overlooked, but they're, it's like... Hearing you outlay it like that, it's like, yeah, well, duh, that's obviously the way to, to get better. But it's it's not actually that simple and we often complicate it in our mind and, and look for shortcuts. So like that's, yeah, yeah. Like, I was just listening to that thinking like, that's so simple, but of course, like obviously that's how we get better. Uh, it's funny that it's not talked about like that more often. Well, I get, we live in a world where we want everything immediately and if there's a way to get it quicker, we'll pay for it or yeah. we'll... <laughs> like if you want to recover quicker, like um, we'll buy Norma tech boots that cost fucking two and a half grand <laughs> or we'll, yeah. I don't even know what other ice baths that do this and that. And then we're going to have an ice bath in our backyard yeah. and all this stuff. I'm like, <laughs> it like it's time. It's, it's minutes and hours that's required to do these things. And, and then it's weeks and then it's months and it's years. And at the very start, when I started running, I remember I was progressing really quickly because I obviously had a bit of talent and I just started training properly. I think I was running about like 100K a week at the time and it was the first year of my running and I remember running with, with a guy, Brett Coleman, and he'd been around for ages and he, he'd run probably 2.30 at the time, hadn't quite broken that barrier and uh, he said to me, he goes, you, you can't, you shouldn't be doing all this high mileage stuff yet. Like you shouldn't be trying to do everything, every race and every workout. Like you need to just back it off a little bit and run a hundred and, uh, well around like a hundred, 120 K a week for a year before you start to do this 140, 150 K stuff, which at the time I was looking at everyone that I was competing against and, and finishing around. And I look at their training and they're running so much more than me and uh like i was like i can train harder than them and and my mindset was like this is this is going to be easy 
because I can train like if, if, if it's a question of who can train harder, I'm winning that every single day. And, and it was a wrong thought process <laughs> because I got injured and, and I actually looked at Brett and I'm like, that's a really mediocre sort of terrible way to look at it. Because if I can run 120, why wouldn't I run 150 and try to shoot for the stars? Like, I don't want to be mediocre. I want to be great. And at the time, it was so, like, immature a way to think of running because now I look back and go, man, if I had stayed at 120K a week for, like, two to three years, I would never have this string of injuries that delayed my progress for, like, five or six years where I just went from one injury to another um, and just hurt me greatly. So, yeah, I wish I could go back and, and, and basically take that advice on board because he was like, you've got to be patient. And, and I was the most impatient person ever. It's one of those things though where like I look at you as like a real hard bastard, a guy who knows how to hurt himself, who is willing to train really hard. And, and if put, like if you stand next to someone, I know that, that you're thinking, yeah, I can beat that bloke or that person. Um, and that's what makes you good. But like you've said there, it was, it's also what led to you having, I don't know, probably a thousand injuries at this, at this stage and, yeah. and probably not fulfilling your potential as quickly as you could have. But at the same time, and this is the paradox is you need that mindset to even to, to get like, to be as good as you are. So I guess that's where someone like in your position, listening to hear you like talking like this needs to know, well, yeah, I am this guy who, who can hurt and wants to train hard, but I just need to use that at the right times, not 24 mm. seven every day, like year round. Oh, I, I mean, I still look back at my training, training programs. Like I was really early on Strava and, and I uploaded like GPS files from when I was super young <laughs> and not super young, but from when GPS first came out and I look back and go, I'm running so much faster back then than I am now. And I'm like, 16 minutes quicker over the marathon. Why am I running so much faster back then on my pretty much every run I did? And, and that's the problem is that mindset gets you into trouble. You, you have to have someone, you have to have someone that you trust and respect and giving you that hold, holding the leash a little bit. I think uh, there's a lot of good athletes that come into our sport that, that don't have that, that, that sort of voice or of reason in their, in their ear telling them, Hey, hold back. This isn't, this isn't a short, short term sport. This is a long-term sport and, and look at what you can do in your mid to late thirties. Like that's the peak time. That's when it's going to be, that's when you're going to go well. And um, now I'm starting to see that because I did have it. I, I had to sort of back it right off and take that, that edge away from myself. And I did that by like, when I opened the store, I, I, I deprioritized training. I ran a lot more just for enjoyment. And then I got to a point where I'd been able to link like 12 months of training. And all of a sudden I had that baseline where I could start training harder and I, I could start sort of stacking bricks and, and, and running 180 K a week. And I only got that from taking the edge off for that first year where I, where I could build back up. I reckon this segues us perfectly into something we were talking about, about off air um, and something we agreed that, that would be interesting for people to hear. And that's um, your top five training mistakes that runners make. Um, and I guess that's a big part of why 
I want you on this podcast, as well as just being like a really good friend of mine who, who I enjoy talking to. I think you're the way you think about um, training is is just so logical, and when you speak, it just makes sense to people. Um, so I think like so many people could benefit from from you just outlining your top five training mistakes that runners make. All right, yeah. So the the number one, and you would you see this because you work in a running store. So we see every segment of the running population come in, and and it's running too fast. So everyone runs too fast on their easy days. Near pretty much everybody that I know, even like well trained athletes, still running too fast. <laughs> and and if you're hearing this, you're going, "Nah, that's not me. I don't do it. It it, it is you." <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking that, and then I'm like, "Yeah, it's me." Yeah, well, it's, it, it it is. And I I look at the the best sort of example I use is when someone tells me they run the easy days at, at four minutes 30 per K. And I'm thinking in my head, oh yeah, I run my easy days at 440. And I ask him, oh, what's your marathon pace? Oh, what's your marathon time? Oh, I'm trying to break three hours. I'm like, oh, so you're trying to run like 13 seconds slower per kilometer from your marathon goal time on every single run you do. And you're running 10 seconds a K quicker than I am and I'm 45 minutes faster than you over the marathon. Like, how does that make sense? How, do, how is that? How, <laughs> this is the prime example of why you're not progressing with your running because every run is in this sort of gray zone area where you're not actually getting aerobically fit, but you're not actually working the anaerobic system or the threshold, like around the lactate threshold where you're getting fit in that manner either. So you're constantly like, in a state of not recovered, but not benefiting from your, your, the exercise you're doing. Uh, that's the number one problem. And it, it happens everywhere at every level uh, there is. And um, I mean, it's probably the biggest frustration I have with running or runners is, is there, you know, they won't listen to that. Like, it, like no matter how many times you tell them, they're not listening to that. Uh, yeah. The second one is patience. So most people are impatient and, they'll build up their running too quickly and they'll see a little bit of progress and they'll look at what they've done and they thought, Oh, I built up my mileage. So I better build it up some more. And then that's worked. So I'll build it up some more. And then all of a sudden they fall over the edge and they go missing for six or 12 months. This is a long-term game. Um, like that's probably the best bit of it. It's rewards someone who, who loves to grind it out, who loves to grind out like, day upon day upon day of training we really like that uh, too much watch data so number three is people are obsessed with data now to their own detriment when they're running they're, they they run along and they're looking at their pace they're looking at their heart rate their cadence um, now they're waking up in their morning and they're looking at their whoop score or whatever it is that you, 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 whoop or whoop, or I'm not sure what it is, but we, we're fully like, we've forgotten what our body feels like and we've forgotten to listen to it. So everyone's out there trying to hit a certain pace for their K rep. And then at the end, you ask them, oh, how'd that feel? What sort of intensity were you working at? They're like, oh, I don't know. Like, so you take your watch away. Do you reckon you could recreate what that felt like? Hmm, nah, I don't. And then it creates... Like their whole world is, their whole running world is influenced by what their watch is showing and what their Strava is saying. 
And I think I think that's a real negative to their progression as a runner. This one's my biggest pet hate. I I hate this. And I the, my number one pet hate in the running world is people who say you go, I'm going to go for a run, whatever it is, 50-minute run. And that run works out to be 9.98K or whatever. And they have to – so you get – say you're running as a group. You might be running as a group of three and you all get to your cars where, where the finish line is and two of you stop your watch. And then this other person just keeps jogging 50 meters up the road and then U-turns and comes 50 meters back yeah. just so that it hits like 10.00 so that it looks good on Strava. Like, do you think your body like recognizes that, oh, I'm not, you're not going to be as fit because you're around 9.98K, not 10.0K? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. What are we trying to, imp- what are we trying to impress here? Or mm. what's this for? Like the bit, I love this. Stuart McSween, probably the best runner we have in the country right now. I mean, he's breaking Australian records. He's, he's one of the best 1500 meter runners in the world. He doesn't use a Garmin. He doesn't have Strava. He uses a stopwatch. That's, isn't that the best example of that? And you see him out running and he's jogging. He's, this, this is my first two points <laughs> and three points. He was not that great as a junior. He was good, but he wasn't that great. It's been a consistent like three, four years of training from when he was, say, 18 until when he was on the world stage. He runs his easy runs easy. Like for him, someone who's running um, like, well, what does he run? Like 240 per K for a 5K or even quicker than that now, like nearly 230. Well, he's, um, he's running his easy days at like 430s, 420s, maybe a little quicker, but doesn't even record it on GPS. So he just, he, I mean, he just runs by feel. That's, he's just so, he's the anti-ego runner, Stewie. And then a lot of this stuff has to do with ego. Running too fast on easy days, being impatient, wanting results like the next week or the next month. And watch data. Again, ego saying, oh, I should be running faster than this or have a look at this workout, that kind of stuff. comes down to ego. And if you can put your ego in your pocket, you're going you're gonna to become a much better runner. Mm-hmm, for sure. Uh, yeah, for, fourth thing is like the lack of mental conditioning in training. Um, so I reckon there's people out there that, that think being strong mentally is just you're born with it, whereas I think it can be trained. And what we, what we see there is like people that skip things that they avoid, like that they know are a little bit more difficult or they, they don't love doing. So for instance, someone who avoids running hills um, where they know that's good for them. They know there's so much benefit to be had from it, but they think they'll go and run around the lake instead. Like to me, that's avoiding a chance to become stronger mentally because there's, there's sort of obviously physical benefits to be gained from it, but there's also accepting and recognizing things that you, make you uncomfortable and going and doing them. So it's almost like callousing, callousing your mind to any type of mental um, adversity you might face. So uh, like running, running in the heat can do that. Uh, running in a group can can be part of that as well. I don't know. There's different things that for different people in this in that category, but we take the easy option a lot of the time. Some people it might be getting up early and running, and when they like they have a work day and they go, oh, they'll they'll use this. Oh, I reckon it's better to get sleep instead of waking up an hour earlier and going for my run. 
no, it's better to go to bed an hour earlier the night before and get the same amount of sleep and do your run. So um, I think we cop out a lot of the time. And the last is pacing. So pacing in workouts, pacing in easy runs, pacing in races. It's too much of this go out hard and die a slow death. For me, like every single world record over like 800 meters has been set with a negative split or a very, very small positive split. So if you can't look at that and work out that, that a negative split is the, the right answer for how to race and how to train, then, um, then you're pretty confused. Yeah, I've got two big questions and that list was so good. Like even I'm thinking, I'm, I was like sort of listening, thinking, fuck, I'd probably make all these mistakes. But um, yeah, so thanks Heath for, for, for doing that and taking your time to do that. Um, my two big questions are, and the ones where I think people can learn, because often what happens when you when someone hears someone speak so logically like that, they still go, oh yeah, and they, they go, that makes sense. But then they still make all the same mistakes and still look for mm. like the, the, cheap, the cheap way out. So like some takeaway things, how do you figure out what easy pace is for you? Well, I use heart rate. So this sort of comes, well, I use heart rate for a certain amount of time because once I, when I come back from a break, I, I forget feel and I, I, I forget what certain things are supposed to feel like. So for instance, if I run a marathon and my training block is for 10 weeks, I've been running easy days at four minutes, 20 per K. When I come back, I instantly fall into running 420 per K, but it feels really difficult, but my body is in such a rhythm for running that pace. It does it anyway. And so I put a heart rate monitor on to go. It's too hard. I'm sticking to what I know my easy heart rate is, which is 130, 140 beats. And so I'll, I'll, I'll basically have to relearn what easy feels like. Then after a couple of months, I've got that feel locked away. And then if I go up a hill or I feel like um, the pace surges a bit in a group, I instantly know I'm at 141 beats a minute now and I don't need my heart rate on. So uh, basically, conversa- it has to be conversational. You shouldn't feel at any point like you're out of breath on an easy run. You shouldn't feel like it's difficult to talk to the person next to you. Um, you should feel like you want to have a conversation with someone. That's, that's easy pace. And at any point where you're starting to think, oh, geez, I wish we would just shut up and run, then that's too, that's too hard because you're, you're starting to work outside your capacity for like recovery, which a lot of the time, easy days, uh, the purpose is for recovery. And you get, your, you get your hard training done on the harder days. So the, the best sort of non-data or the non-heart rate, the non-lactate prescription for easy days is you should be able to just have an easygoing, friendly conversation with the person next to you without breaking breath. Yeah. And, and if you are someone who lets you e- your ego sort of get a bit ahead of you um, and dictate your training, like you're, you're someone who uses Strava or an app like that and, you know, you have to see 4.59 per K, not 5.01 per K, or, you know, your run has to be... 8.0k not 7.45k what's your advice for someone like that should they get off those apps and just you know let the ego go and, and do their own thing should they get rid of their watch full stop like how would you, how would you as a coach or as a friend to like give advice around that uh, getting off strava for that sort of person would be 
like, I mean, ideal, but it isn't going to happen. That's the thing. Like someone with an ego, and I know because I have an ego, um, <laughs> and I know that it's difficult to, when you, when you start to get a little fitter, to want to tell people you're getting fitter. And the best way to tell people is through Strava because they're seeing your workouts and your races and everything. And um, it's, it's a, it is a difficult thing to do and it's a challenge. And I still haven't, I, like there's definitely athletes that I have that I, I can't influence. Like whatever I, I can't persuade them. Like I haven't found the right answer to, to have them realize that what they're doing is a mistake. But I think getting off Strava, like you said, that's, I mean, that's perfect because if no one else can see what you're doing and it's only you, then why should you, why should you care if your watch says 4.59 or five minutes? Like you must, that's an insecurity thing. Mm. If, you're not secure, if you're not secure enough to know that you're getting a training benefit from running at 5.01 versus 4.59, then that's probably a little bit something like deeper seated than, than just um, getting off Strava. Um, yeah. I think trying to educate them. So have them understand like the purpose of what an easy day is. And, and normally if you have them commit to say at least a month where they are disciplined enough to run easy on their easy days, they see immediate results in their, their training, in their workouts. So all of a sudden their workout days get better and their race results improve and their long runs start feeling more comfortable and their overall energy throughout the week, it's, it's, it's improved, it's heightened. And so they can start to run more mileage. And then when they run more mileage, they're getting fitter. And so everything sort of, it's like domino effect of, um, of everything improving once you start to, to actually train uh, a little bit more smart. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. Even even I'm just sitting here thinking I'm taking so much out of this. So, yeah, thanks again for doing that. I, I want to switch it up a bit now and um, and talk about your training specifically. So we sort of talked broad philosophy, philosophies and and that sort of thing. But something that I know and I personally was super fascinated and interesting in was was your building to the world champs. Um, so for people who don't know, Julian represented Australia in the 2019 um, world champs at, at the marathon and. It was a really interesting event and and I can't wait to unpack the training for it because it was over in Doha um, and you were racing at midnight and the reason why was largely temperature, wasn't it? Because it was, you know, 40 degrees there and, and super humid. Um, and I saw firsthand every day how much work and, and how much thought you put into preparing for that race and, and the sacrifices you made like financially and and with your friends and, 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 and even business to a degree. Um, so yeah, can we sort of like go back to there and, and the preparation leading into that race and, and, and tell everyone about it? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a tough one. Like, because I knew that was, that was a, a really good chance for me. Like I didn't, I got in because I was the fourth fastest Australian that year and the other three guys decided they didn't want to run at Doha. So Liam Adams, Jack Rayner, Brett Robinson had all qualified for that event, but had given their spots up. Um, the three three could have gone, whereas I was um, I was the fourth. So uh, like I went by myself, and um, the only Australian in the in the field. So I, I kind of knew this could be my only chance to represent Australia, um, and I don't really care where it is. Like <laughs> I'll take anything, um, and the fact that it was in Doha, like to me meant 
okay, well, if I'm smart about this and other people don't respect it as much, the heat and the conditions, then I might, like there's an opportunity for me to finish a bit higher up in the field than if it was, say, at Berlin and, and those guys run two, two hours, three minutes, then I'm stuck back in like running two hours, 14. Like I'll probably come 80th. I think I was ranked, I, I got in with 214, 41 or something. And that ranked me about 75th or something out of 80 people in the field. So I was way ranked way at the back. So I knew like, I knew what my race would, would be like. And um, yeah, the, the training didn't go that great, to be honest. Like I had some issues leading in, like I had a, so the race was on, I think it was October 3rd or something. And, and my first race of the whole block was, was Gold Coast half at the start of July. And I had a shocking race. And I got beaten by heaps of people. And I, was, I went through halfway and uh, slower than my marathon pace. Um, so I went through the Gold Coast half. Like I ran the, the, the half slower than what I'd run the marathon half in. And um, there was a bit of pressure because I just got selected then. And a lot of people had beaten me. And it was, it was almost a little embarrassing because all of a sudden there's a bit of an expectation that you should be performing because you've just been selected in the Australian team to wear the singlet at, at a, at a world championships, which sort of just behind the Olympics in terms of prestigiousness or prestige. Um, <laughs> so I, I was feeling way more pressure and expectation than I had in the past. And I know that on that stage, it's not like you can just disappear into your own world and, and like you, I, I go to BWA, no one cares if I run 214 or run 2.30. Like no one cares. But if you've got an Australian singlet on and the whole country is watching, not the whole country, but the whole athletics community in Australia is watching what you do, then people do start caring. And, and that's like the first time that's happened um, for me, like with people actually caring what I did. And so I felt a lot more expectation to get it right. How much of um, that pressure do you think is influenced by the position you now hold in like the running community in Australia? So you've sort of gone from a guy who was living in Geelong, a pretty, you know, not a small country town, but a, a relatively small town on a world scale um, who was just working away, doing his thing, doing a bit of running, who really no one knew. But now you're like, you own a, a running company store, which is one of the biggest in Australia that you talk to runners every single day and are so well known from there. And, and you're the host of you know, the biggest running podcast pretty much in the world, but definitely in Australia. Um, so every single week you jump on and you talk about your training and your racing and, and how much pressure just came from, from, from all of that. So that when you like, you know, had a bit of a poor result at the Gold Coast half, you're like, Oh shit, I ought to go on my podcast and get roasted about how shit I was, I was, and, mm. you know, go to work and talk to people about running. And they ask me how I go and I have to go like, Oh, well, I went fucking shit. Like yeah. how much of a, uh, how much of a factor of those two things played? Yeah, I think that I think that does play a part because you're held accountable to more people are hearing your story and more people are like predicting what you do and more people are judging you. Like whether I care about that or not, more people are judging you and I think it'd be really difficult not to care how judged you get. Like it would take a a pretty um like ice cold person to to not really care 
about how judged you were getting on your performances. I mean, there's probably people out there that just don't care at all. But for me, I still cared what people thought, especially because I'm coaching myself. So a lot of like this comes down to me and like my coaching philosophy rather than me as just an athlete. Because my like I, I want my philosophy to work and I I back it and I'm like I'm proud of it. So when it doesn't work and when it fails, um, I can tell like there would be people going, yeah, you should like you're doing this wrong or you should have been doing this. And um like a lot of the times I'll race to stand up for my philosophy if that makes sense mm, um, yeah. to show that it to show that it works and to um to basically almost convince people that that's this is what we should be doing um, but yeah I, I felt pressure from that for sure um, i also felt a lot of the support and love from that as well like without that podcast and that community behind me there's there's a lot of good to that as well so like it's so many messages of support, people knowing who you are, people caring, mm, yeah. people um, like, although I think that people care if I go poorly, they, they still don't really. Um, <laughs> it's just in my head. Yeah. And yeah, it's for sure. it, like, we always think the worst. Um, they actually don't care if I run 77 or 75. Most people won't even know the difference. But <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. But I still build it up like, oh, that's a fail. And, um, all these people are going to hear about it and, uh, yeah, really, no one really cares. They actually just want you to do well as a person. And they, if, if you don't do well, they're still like, you're still you. Yeah. I know, I, I know like something I've really struggled with, um, is that like you have this fear of not wanting to even race sometimes because you know, it's going to be shit and you think people are going to judge you when in reality, everyone cares about like sort of one or two things they care about themselves. And so like, they don't really care at all about how someone else does they'll just like um they might like hear you say and they'll be like oh yeah that sucks or oh yeah that's good um and if they do care about you then they really just care if you do well and if you do shit they don't like they'll just put put their arm around you like exactly it's a very small percentage of the population who just hate on people and like want someone to do badly they're like they can sometimes be a loud voice but it's really it's probably like less than one percent of the population who are actually like that so it's like a bit of a stupid thing to be scared of isn't it it's a hundred percent. The running community does not have like trolls. Um, if, if an AFL player has a bad day on the big stage, he gets hammered from pillar to post on every single forum on the internet, right? As well as the members shouting at you from over the stand and the opposition caning you. That doesn't happen in running. If you have a bad race, you're going to get like 50 messages from people saying, Oh, chin up, like we all have it, shit one, move on, you're better, rah, rah, rah. Like no one's actually having a crack at you. It's it's totally different with running. Yeah. Um, I would be scared to be an AFL player. <laughs> with, 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 with how Kane they get in the media and, and sometimes it's to that run, to like I do think that sometimes it's probably to the detriment of, of our sport that we can't take criticism like that. So if anyone ever wrote an article saying, um, oh, this marathon, like the marathon performance of this athlete was, was horrible at the Olympics. And we like, look at all the things that went wrong. Why wasn't this changed? Why, like, have you, have they considered changing um, this? They, they need to change their coach. It, it's, it's, we're probably the only sport where no one really openly criticizes what we do. Do you think that um, like, 
what what is that from? Is it just because we because um, it's an individual sport, or like what what is it that means that um, like we take criticism about our performance so much worse than than what other sports do? I think it's just a really small like at the top end. It's a small world, and probably a lot of the journalists that are are in the world or are in this sort of running world are friends with the athletes, and so no one really wants to. Um, put anyone offside yeah and it's it's more we we might we mainly celebrate how we're going and we celebrate the sport we never there's not like some like panel like on late night tv where they they really deconstruct a a player and tell them what they're doing wrong and why they should do this and and it, it just it just doesn't happen so i think yeah all the all the probably better journalists in our sport are great friends with the the runners and i mean us on the podcast as i guess we'll call ourselves the the running media because like we we report on it and we talk about it and we discuss it well well, we're commentators on the sport we're friends with a lot of them too so if someone has a bad race like i will be hesitant to go oh look i think they fucked their training because they did too much of this and not enough of that and then they were a bit too cocky here or whatever like (laughs) i don't want to say that about my friend like on a podcast that has so many listens, like it is interesting that you say it's to the de- it might be to the detriment of the sport though. Like I wonder how big a difference it would make if we did have Caroline Wilson yeah. say, "Hey, I'm going to get obsessed with athletics and you know do some deep dives into the admin at Athletics Australia," and then you have like you know Cornsy come over as well and go, "Well, I'm going to you know do a deep dive on specific training that that people are doing, and I'm going to dissect it. I'm going to tell you if you're doing something wrong and." Yeah, it is interesting whether it would like um, increase the uh, level of the sport. Yeah, I, I, it would make it interesting watching and reading because no one does it. It would be a first. Yeah. And I think there would be a lot of triggered people um, that are probably hearing this stuff for the first time as well because like we might talk about it within our training group and go, oh, why are they doing this? They've trained too hard. They've done this session too close to the race. But then like when you see that athlete, you don't really call them out on it, do you? Like you never, yeah. It's a good podcast idea if someone's listening and wants to start their own podcast. Someone who's not friends with anyone. um, (laughs) Thinking about making like a troll account on Twitter and doing it, but then, then you're, (laughs) then you're just contributing to the troll world, even if it might be beneficial. What would your, uh, what would your troll tag account name be? Ah, yeah. What's that nickname you used? Lance Uppercut. Oh, well, that now, now everyone knows it, so I can't use that. Right. I was going to make a Strava one where it was like the Strava, the, the Strava judge or something, and then if, <laughs> if someone puts up something like an ice bath <laughs> on Strava, then I would just go on and do like a thumbs down. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean, we've ruined that now, yeah, but maybe edit this out and then actually make yeah. that. That would be funny. The Strava judge. Yeah. <laughs> Um, anyway, going back to you, going back to your, your Doha build. So you had that race at the Gold Coast half and, and that was, you know, a couple of months. Yeah. Was that like, that was like three, four months away from, from Doha from memory, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. So that was, um, September. Yeah, it was. So it was, it was right when things started to get kind of meaty for me. Um, and then I, I did my, I had, I had a sore back and I got quite sick. And so I ended up, I, I went to St. Moritz on the 26th of august and and that was one two three like six weeks before the race and i had a couple of bad workouts just before i left and 
yeah, I really didn't um, think I was in very good shape. So I was getting mileage in though. This is where I kind of had to trust a little bit. Like I had a couple of weeks, like 185, 182Ks. And then I got to St. Moritz and had ran 191Ks. So like three weeks of good volume. I knew, I knew it would start clicking for me. I just had to sort of be patient because I'd run like BYR ran 214 earlier in the year. So I knew the formula for what worked. Uh, and, and I just tried to, to basically like do the same formula again for this. And I, I allowed myself more recovery because I was at um, altitude and, and I wasn't working in the store so I could recover better during the day. And I was around sort of people like a high performance environment. So I was around um, some athletes that had been and done it all before. And, and, and it just like that just, it's contagious in that sort of high performance world, like being around other people that are so professional. So I just started to sort of believe a little more. And, and then I got some good workouts going in St. Moritz, but it was great because you never know how, fit you are at altitude because you don't know how much of an effect the altitude's having. So I was doing some workouts like just as good or if not better than what I was doing back home. And I, I wasn't sure what the altitude was sort of how much it was affecting the paces. So uh, I liked that because it meant that I didn't have to really worry or there was a little bit of an unknown with how fit I was because it's, it sort of allowed me to have a higher ceiling from when I got down from altitude to the race. Um, so yeah, some of the workouts that I did leading in, like I did 10 by a K, which isn't that marathon specific, but it was um, around the, the track at St. Moritz, like on the outside of the track. So not, not actually, Oh, this one might've, I think I alternated on the track and on the road around the track and, I did 10 by K from 249s to 301s. And then, yeah, it was, it, that was a good one for me because I didn't think I was that fit at the, at the time. And then later on did some, um, did three by seven K where, where I blew up and had a really tough one. And again, like this is one of those sort of mental conditioning things. I think you need to have a bad workout in the lead up, a bad long run, even in the lead up to the marathon, because that's when you get to practice those like mental toughness strategies that you, you use in the race. Because if you, if all your workouts are going well, then you never get to practice things when they go bad and things go bad in the marathon all the time. And so if you're not practicing condition to handling that or callousing yourself mentally through training, then when, think, when you get to a race and, and you get to 30K and all of a sudden you get a stitch or things feel a little too hot too early, then you'll, you, you won't know what to do because you've never been in that position and you panic. And as soon as you start panicking in the marathon, your race is, is over because it won't start feeling better. Um, and so like the, the workout I had where I ran three by seven K at marathon effort and a 2K float, Things got out of things got too hard too early. So instead of running marathon pace effort, I was running 10k to like half marathon effort for these reps. And they are long reps, like 20, 22, 23 minutes worth of running. And um, yeah, I had to find some, 
I defined some good headspace through that workout that I actually did think really helped me when I got to Doha and, and I had like, and I was running and it was hot there. Is that headspace you get in something you can describe? Cause I've always struggled with this. Um, when you're sort of hurting in training and you, you know, you do go to those darker places and, and, and have strategies to get through it. It's really, I find it really hard to describe to someone what that actually is. Did, can you, like, are you someone who can sort of say like, well, this is how I'm feeling and this is what I'm thinking and this is how I get through it? Um, well, I can in big races. So the workouts, like I can only get up for a couple of races a year where I can basically invest everything emotionally in them. It's why I don't race very well outside of the big main races I have because um, the like for me, I can... I can go deep into a well of things that get me through hard spots in races. Um, and I've talked about this, like Ali is the perfect example that, that, that can't do that and doesn't do that. She's still, I mean, she's a phenomenal athlete. She's better than I am at running. Like um, relatively she's 23rd at the Olympics. But when I try to explain to her things that help, me she she can't relate to it at all so basically like i i can emotionally invest and bring out like deep feelings of um like i'd say like love loyalty um what other sort of trend like themes sacrifice like I, I can find ways to 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 basically push through tough parts of marathons by evoking these or invoking these like feelings of, like such strong emotions. And, and I can basically increase like the adrenaline that I've got at that time to almost blunt the feelings of pain. And, and I can do that probably two to three times a year in races. And, and I can't do that in races that don't mean a lot to me. Um, so at Doha, like I had themes written down because there was seven lap course and Every lap I had, um, while well, Bree was Bree was on the sideline with a friend of ours, Christian, and every lap there was a poster, and I would go past and look at the poster, and like early on, all about discipline, patience, finding what I like, finding my zone, my rhythm, those kinds of things, and then like the theme became more around hunting, like okay, now it's time for you to hunt people ahead. And, and then when it got to like the real hard point, it, that's when the emotional stuff come out. And, and that's, I guess, why I'm really good in the back end of marathons when maybe some other people aren't. So like obviously knowing you pretty well, I think I know the, the things that you are emotionally connected to, but can you take us inside like, say like, you know, from K32 to, to 42 or whatever, whenever it gets hard for you, what are like sort of the, the two or three main things that really, really drive you emotionally? Is it, is it people or is it, is, it, is it your own sacrifice? Nah, it's always people. Always people. And, you know, you're, you're fucking me up a little bit. Take your time, mate. I mean, I... Uh, it, it's funny. So, like, uh, this is the thing about you and it's a, a bit of a paradox of Julian Spence is, you're known as such a hard man, but, but knowing you well, I, I do know how much the, the people you care about mean to you. And, and I've seen you get emotional about it a couple of times. And it's actually like, it's, it's uh, in a weird way, it's, it's really nice to see um, when, when you let your guard down a little bit like this. So 
Yeah, thanks. And I mean, it, it is like, I can, yeah, I don't do it often. And that's why it hits me when I do. Yeah. Um, especially like just, it's mainly around sacrifice and like people have given up things for me. Yeah. But like, even like just thinking about it now and um, getting out on the course and, and these sorts of feelings, like they are pretty strong. Mm. And, and if you bottle them up, like I do, <laughs> and you can really use them to your benefit and that's um that's what i've worked out how to do yeah i'm fucking getting emotional listening to this <laughs> it is um you like you are just such such a strong person and 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 i think sometimes people don't realize uh how how big a heart you have and and yeah and like I know particularly like I'm really good friends with with your wife Bree and and you're both really important people to me and one of the um probably one of like the biggest things you you guys have done for me as people is is I see how much you care about each other and uh it's this isn't running chat obviously which is um not the point but but yeah you guys have such a strong relationship and um and sacrifice so much for each other and have built this life together that just it bloody inspires the shit out of me and then uh, I know that no doubt thinking about the sacrifices Bree's made for you um, is one of the things that, that, that makes you such a strong bastard in the last 5K of the, of the marathon amongst other people in your family. So, Yeah, thanks. Yeah, cheers, mate. And that, that means a lot to me. And um, obviously we have a, a small circle. Um, I have a small circle of people like that, that I really care about. And, and that's, um, that's, I guess, just how, how I've sort of built that and, and, and obviously those people in the store, like, like yourself have been there since the beginning and um, we've watched you <laughs> grow up and develop and, and, and now you're on a hosting a podcast and you're, you're doing some great things. Like we, we have a small circle and yeah, like, I, I guess the, the smaller the circle, maybe the, the, the bigger, the emotional sort of investment in those people. Um, so yeah, we, we appreciate you as part of that circle as well. Um, if you're ready, let's take it back to Doha. So, yeah, um, yeah sorry. Nah, nah, I was, uh, yeah, it was, yeah, I, I personally just like, I, I, it's, it's weird that I, I love hearing you get emotional because I just know who you're thinking about and what it means to you. And it's, it's, yeah, it's sort of like, sort of don't want to harp on it, but it's pretty, it's pretty nice. Um, it's not sad tears. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, like the big thing I'm fascinated about is like the conditions there at Doha. Um, how how did you deal with that and, and like what temperature was it what was the humidity humidity when you were running um the race and and you were over, obviously up in altitude when you were training so were you doing heat preparation at the same time mm, yeah the heat stuff i felt like we could take advantage of what we knew um or what uh what i thought we knew and that others wouldn't do um so like we we knew it was going to be hot at doha like anyone who rocked up to Doha, Doha who, who was surprised with how hot it was, um, then they were kidding themselves because as soon as it got announced marathon in Doha, it doesn't matter if it's at midnight or during the day, it's going to be fucking hot. And so I like, there's a few principles out there for, for heat training and heat um, acclimation. And so I like a friend of ours 
Sam to Beck. He'd just done his PhD in it or he was doing it in it at the time. So I actually had him design a little bit of a program around how to implement it. Um, and so it's a mix of active heat and passive heat. Active heat was running in a, a heat chamber or running rugged up where you're um, obviously you're, you're exposing yourself to high humidity and high body temp, high, like you're raising your, your core body temperature um, and you're increasing your, your sweat rate. So you're training yourself to sweat more and uh, handle a heat exposure basically. And then passive heat is the sauna or the hot bath afterwards. So where you're not going to compromise your running, um, you're, you're going to just expose yourself to heat after your training. And so it was a mix of trying not to affect our training um, while still adding the stress of the heat. And yes, at altitude at, this, at that um, same, at the same time was an extra stress. So there were a lot of sort of like, risk factors involved here and to be honest i took some risks with it like i took some risks training at altitude and adding heat a lot of people were sort of saying that that's probably too much um, especially with the mileage i was doing but it ended up working out and i think because i was fully aware of the risks i was able to make day-to-day decisions about what not to do and what to do in terms of um, how much to run or what when i could shift workouts and and should I do heat training today? Um, that kind of stuff. So I actually managed to get through that block at, at St. Moritz really well using the sauna and um, the uh, rugged up on the treadmill. Then I went down to Italy, Gavarate, which is like the AIS kind of home in Europe. And I was able to get in the, the kind of like a heat chamber in there where we would run and we'll try to simulate the conditions of Doha um, then I had, then we went to Doha eight days before the race and man, the first time I, the first run out of the air, airplane, basically, like we got there about midnight, headed down to, uh, the hotel and I'm like, Oh, I'll go for a run. The women's marathons on, we got a taxi down, Bree and I got a taxi to the, as close as we could to the race, got out of the taxi and I'm like, where the fuck am I? Am I on the, am I on the sun? That like <laughs> this was the the women were running a marathon and I was watching them along and they were like outside of the front pack it was it was jogging and they were they were cooked and I ran for probably eight k and and I had to stop multiple times I was running about four forty fives four fifties and my heart rate was like at threshold and and I just had this like realization that how how am I supposed to run a marathon right now? I'm watching ladies collapse on the sideline. It was a like war zone on that road that night. They had the worst conditions ever. Um, I could not train properly. Like I was spent. And that week I was, so I was, I ran probably like four or five nights in a row. One of them was even a workout um, that I did and things were going so badly uh, and then I was like, it was weird. What, like two nights before I, two nights before I went out and I'm like, I've, I've got halfway through, halfway through the run. I'm like, I'm thinking about this wrong. I'm in a super negative mind frame. 
about this race. Like I'm worried and I'm scared and I'm thinking about how bad it's going to go. And for some reason, halfway through that, I just turned my heart rate off and I'm like, fuck it. You're here. Everyone else is dealing with these conditions. You've done more heat work than anyone else. Um, I know on the start line, people will have faster PBs, but I kind of went back to that same mentality that when I started running, I'm like, if this is a matter of running, I'm gonna, I can hurt more than everybody. Like, that's not a question. I, I know deep down I can hurt more than anyone next to me. And PBs don't matter when it's 40 degrees and you're at the 30K mark of a marathon. That's, that's a point of how, how, how much you can move forward when your body's telling you not to. And, and I know I can do that. And so I like got back from that run and I was fully pumped up and I'm like, I fucking got this now. And, and for some, I don't know how I did it on that run, how I changed, but it just changed. And the next day, like felt really good on my run. And um, then I got to the start line of the marathon and all of a sudden the weather was cooler. The humidity had dropped from like 90% every night down to about 50 and it was 28 to 29 degrees. Like I've just spent 10 days running in 40 degree, 90% humidity type weather. This feels like it's cold. Like I was, I just, it didn't feel right. And, and so everyone had better races than what I thought they would. Um, I, I thought that hurt me a little bit because I was so prepared for it to be awful. And I think the worst that it could have been the better I would have gone in terms of where I was at in terms of like my planning into like with heat training and um, even my game plan was real conservative and that would have paid off if it was hotter. Uh, in the end, I ran like a, I think I ran like a 15 second negative split to run 219, um, 40 something. And uh, I finished 39th. Uh, which to me was like huge because I went in ranked 70 something. Um, so for me, that was a win. Every single person I finished in front of to me was, was a, was a plus. And I was really proud of how I raced like to run under 220 on a night. Like that wasn't the, like it wasn't the, the worst night I could have got, but it was still like 30 degrees at the end. And um, if someone told me you're going to run 219 and 30 degrees, I would laugh at them because I'm not a 210 guy. I'm a 214, like best in my career guy. So to run 219 and, and finish 39th, yeah, I was stoked with how it all went. And I was just really happy with how all the planning went and just the attention to detail with the, the heat stuff and the altitude and making sure, again, this was me like celebrating my coaching as well as the, the athletic performance. Anyway, yeah, that was, that was a good result. Yeah, and, and I just want to go like I want to unpack a, a bit of that, but just to take it back a, a little bit, a, a little bit. So you mentioned that you did sort of like three weeks where you went like 180, 180, 190 k's. How many weeks in a row did you hit sort of volume like that in the lead up? Yeah, uh, so I can see, like I was, I, I can see from the 12th of August. These are my weeks of mileage leading into the race: 185, 182, 191. 170, 210, 170, 120, and then race week 104. So that isn't that many weeks um, leading in. It just, everything went quite well in those weeks. And, and I, I reckon I was just calling on a few of those marathon buildups I've done over the past couple of years as well, that 
that don't go away. Like they're, they're all investments. All those marathon builds that you've done over the past few years, they, they don't disappear. They stay with you. It's, um, it's funny that you say that's not that many, whereas for most people, if they could hit sort of six, seven weeks in a row of, you know, 170 being the lowest and the high being 210, that's the, like, that's probably double the mileage that most people do. I know at the elite level, you know, 160 plus is, is not that uncommon, but it's still 210K in a week is fucking crazy. Yeah, that was, I, I, so that was like the, having the flexibility being your own coach and sort of running to your own schedule means that I was, I had to push a long run back because it, it snowed really bad on a Sunday um, of the week before. So I didn't get a long run in. And so I pushed that to the Monday and did the workout on the Monday, but then also did a workout on Sunday. So it was a bit of a cheap mileage week mm. where you have two long runs. Yep, yep. <laughs> this works, works it out. Yeah. And um, I, I, I think like, like the big question I have is, were you happy with your performance there? Like when you walk away with that, could you retire now and be like, yeah, that was a, that was a good high point along with my 214 or, or do you want more? Do you want to represent Australia again? You know, like is the Olympic marathon a realistic goal? Where, where's your head at around all of that? Well, I can, I can, I can walk away now happy with how it's all gone for sure. Like I'm really proud of the 214 for sure. Cause I have no business running 214. Like, like you said, at 2016, I'd run 225 and I wasn't going anywhere. So to run 214 was a pretty like out of the box type of improvement and progression. And um, like, I, I'm not sure whether I'll be able to get back. I mean, I, in my mind, in my heart, I think I can get back to 214 fitness but it's a different thing running 214. You can get to the fitness level, but executing it, things have to go right. So a lot of marathoners have reached fitness levels where they can say, oh, I'm in 220 shape. But what they'll get is a day that it's a little windy or it's like, well, there's not a pack for them to run with or they might have a gut problem or whatever. So they can be in 220 fitness, run 223. Um, for me so everything has to go right on the day so i feel like i can get back to 214 fitness and then i'll just have to get a good day and i reckon i can can get back there um but i don't know whether i have the capacity to go faster because i'm not fast like if you look at the calculators and the conversions for a 214 the 5k 10k half are stupidly faster than what i've already done um, so I'm like a marathon specialist and in order to have the potential to go quicker over the marathon, I think you need to sort of be more efficient and economical and you only get that by being a, a faster runner. Um, so I need, a, that's, is a little bit of an unknown there. And this 219, like 219 in at Doha, uh, like I, I kind of looking at the marathon that we just saw at Melbourne on the weekend, it was a lot cooler conditions um, and like a lot of good runners didn't break 220. And so for, for me, like I'm pretty happy with, with where that 219 sit sort of ended up like at, at Doha in those conditions. That's yeah. I'm, I'm happy where that was. I, 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 everyone in front of me is a better athlete than me that day. 
And most people behind me is a better athlete as well. If you look at the guys who did well in that race, like the winner, like one of them, like two ten high, I think from memory, I should have done some research, but they were all like, you know, six to seven minutes slower than their PB. The guys who did well, the guys mm. who did poorly were obviously a lot further back than that. But like for you to finish in 219 and, and, uh, the guy who won to, to go like nearly 211, who's like a 203 high or 204 yeah. low guy. It's sort of, I mean, it's it's obviously not how it works, but it sort of equates to, you know, like a two, anywhere from like a 211.30 to like a 213 type performance. Like, so on paper, it's, I think it's your best performance, but it doesn't sort of have that feel. Like you probably look at your 214 because it says 214, even though I think that run like equivalent is probably better. Yeah, I think I think I was in the same sort of shape as I was at BWA for that race, uh, but I was just specifically better at there because of the heat stuff I'd done, and the, I was really happy with how I executed the race. So there were guys that I kind of had the same, well, not the same PBs, but similar PBs to me, maybe a couple of minutes quicker, just um, up the road in a big pack, and I and I. There was a temptation for me to jump on that pack early, but it went against my pre-race plan of, of basically running to my own feel. And, and I, I resisted the temptation and, and I ended up running. Like for me to run like 15 second negative split, that's pretty much, I couldn't have gone faster really. You can't really go faster than running a 15 second negative split because if I... It, if someone takes the argument, oh, you could have gone with that pack and gone through a minute quicker over the half and then then maybe you only 30-second positive split, I'm like, no, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> I've pretty much run the optimal race. Um, so I couldn't have gone faster. Like my pacing is perfect for me. So what I did sitting back and, and spending a lot of time by myself out on that course, was was I was happy with how I did it and I was disciplined. So I was, I was pretty... Um, proud of how disciplined I was during that, that race. I've, uh, I've listened to your podcast enough to know that you and the number one man over there at inside running Brady, um, always tend to disagree about that. He's like a bank timer and you're a mm. more think about it. So I've heard you have that, that debate, uh, many, many times and listeners of the inside running podcast would have been nodding their head, probably thinking of you and Brady having that debate then. Um, but yeah, I, I think like, um, like it, it's just really hard to listen to you talk about the marathon and not agree with what you say, knowing how much you've got out of the marathon relative to what you've got out of the rest of your running career. Mm. Like you've ran great times. They're, they're, so, they're stupid fast times, but nothing compares to what you've done in the marathon. So for someone who, you know, has ran like some faster times, but struggles with the marathon, listening to a guy like you is so valuable. Yeah. And I, like, I think it's probably a combination of, the training that I do coupled with the, my physiology being more suited to aerobic running. Um, and then maybe like the more influence of the mental game on the marathon than to other distances, then that's, I think it's a combination of those things that make me more um, specialized in it. Yeah. Whereas if you, there's not a lot of mental game going into a 10 K let's be honest. Like, you're only hurting for five or 10 minutes in a, in a good 10 K. Yeah. Um, whereas you can hurt for like 40 minutes in a marathon. Yeah. The, the shorter stuff's definitely like more physiological, you know, biased. And then the longer stuff is, is probably more psychologically biased mm. for sure. And if someone was like to ask me as someone who knows you pretty well, what makes like Jules such a good marathon? I'd just say that it's, you're just a hard bastard. 
and a stubborn bastard I'd say is a big thing so like you just you just refuse to to give up on yourself and and the people around you like and I think that's what makes you so special over the marathon yeah yeah thanks that's that's kind of why why I think that too and it it's it's a little sometimes it's like frustrating when you you can't get faster. <laughs> You're like, fuck, I've run these marathons and I just cannot get faster. Um, but it's okay because the mar- only people only care about the marathon anyway, don't they? <laughs> I think so. But also, look, you're just old, so you're not going to yeah. run a fast 5K. Um, hey, uh, that sort of takes me into the next thing we we're going to talk about and probably a good good note to like um, wrap the show up on, you being like the marathon man. Um we uh we discussed sort of like what are like the the sort of things the lists you could give people to that you really could influence people in a positive way and we went with like the top five training mistakes earlier in the show but the top three tips to like perform best over the marathon to get the most out of yourself over the marathon distance um can you walk us through what your top three tips there are yeah so i'll just keep it pretty simple getting to the start line healthy most people start a marathon block, say it's a 12-week training program or something, they'll do six awesome weeks. The seventh week, they'll get carried away. They'll get injured at, with like five weeks left, four weeks left, and they'll limp into the start line and they'll have a terrible race. So basically get to the start line healthy, even if it means um, taking some days off where your body requires it, not running through niggles, recognizing what's dangerous and what's not so being healthy on the start line with good momentum rather than getting to the start line on a real downward trend is important Um, so do that even like periodize your training going in where you have a proper down week or a proper almost like a rest week about a month out and then you can hit the marathon like in a good upward trend of feeling good um Yep. So second one, introducing adversity into your training. So have some runs that challenge you mentally, whether that's a a longer long run where the last half an hour is really difficult and you have to sort of um, push through through some things that might challenge you. Uh, Maybe it's a a hilly run that you don't do. Uh, Maybe it's it's, it's a longer steady run that, it's not like some people are really easy, can run for two or three hours easy, no problems. But then it, it, once you introduce a little bit of intensity into that, they start to struggle. So introduce adversity into your training um, and then structure everything around your long run because your long, the long run is the most important thing for the marathon. It's the most specific. It's where you'll get the most adaptions that are, uh, again, specific for the, the event you're training for. So it might be a, a long one that you do once every seven days. Maybe it's once every 10 days. Maybe you do a long run once every two weeks, but everything should get structured around that. That's not like an afterthought based off like the six by one K you do. You, you structure things around long run day. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I guess they're actually like sort of similar themes you've talked around like the whole time. Um and they just maybe become a, a little bit more important for the marathon. Um, but I, I yeah, like I'm, I can't imagine how much like uh, people are going to take from that because they're all so simple and logical. They're just put out really, really well by you. And I think that's that's such a strength of yours is t- 
taking the complex and the overthought and making it really logical and, and simplifying it for people to understand. Yeah. And looking at things that we do and going, well, why do they work? Like why, why do some of our best half marathoners, why can't they convert into like to a good marathon? And then like, is it, is it, training they're doing that isn't challenging them mentally so they can develop a good mental game or is it long runs that aren't long enough or like what is it about the training that we're doing that's working for us and then um trying to replicate it like for other people i guess so getting to the start line healthy is so important like that's just the, the, it's some of the times that I've limped into a marathon and had a shocker, like you, you know, you're having a shocker three weeks out if you're not feeling good. I had a, a coach once say like pretty much the last three weeks before the marathon or the last two to three weeks, every run should feel good. So if you're not recovered and feeling good in the last two to three weeks, then you need to recover more. Um, and you need to start to get that upward trend going where you just feel good. So you shouldn't be tired. You shouldn't be like um, have soreness in those last two to three weeks before the marathon. Like don't hang on, hang on until the taper. You've, you've really like, that's probably one mis mistake that people think is they think that all of a sudden they hit two weeks to go and their body just instantly becomes this fresh, sprightly, like poppy, energetic organism. <laughs> it's, it's not like that. You have like, even the taper can feel shit if you've felt shit four weeks out, three weeks out. Um, so I, I would prefer people getting to the, the, the race day undercooked rather than overcooked. Yeah, such good advice. Hey, mate, I reckon we, uh, we wrap it up there. I've taken up so much of your day, but I just couldn't, like, I couldn't stop listening to that. And um, this is by far the longest episode we've done, like by a solid 40 minutes or something. But that like you are, it, it is true. I, like I sort of, it's pretty funny, but you are known as the wise man over on your podcast. And fuck, when it comes to training, um, you are as wise as they, as they come and, and just, yeah, you're just so logical in the way you, you speak and, and everything you say makes sense to me, even though I've made every single mistake you've probably talked about, but yeah, I'm, I'm actually going to go back and listen to this one and, um, and try and take something from it. Cause, uh, yeah, that was, that was, that was awesome. Um, thanks. Yeah. So thank, yeah. Thanks for joining me. And like this one in particular, this has meant, meant a lot to me. So like, yeah, for people who know me know that, that I sort of look up to you a bit and you're a really, um, close friend of mine. And, um, and you were actually the first person I ever told about this podcast. I, uh, I messaged you and said, like, do you want to catch up for a coffee and, and sort of laid out my idea for you and, and your confidence and knowing the success you've had in the, the podcast world and, and in the business space really gave me, um, gave me confidence to start it. And so I'm at like sort of eternally grateful for you spending four hours out in the sun with me at uh, races cafe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I've read, I mean, it's selfishly, I've, I've, I've loved that you've started it because I've really enjoyed the episodes. Like really, I like that you get on old washed up people like me who don't really, <laughs> who don't really care what they say anymore <laughs> and actually have better advice than getting on like young, fresh professionals who don't really have a lot of like wisdom yet. They're just full talent, no, no experience. Whereas the old heads, they have the experience and they, they can give better advice. Yeah. Well, you certainly are old and, and Hey, yeah. thanks for, thanks heaps for opening up and, and being super honest and raw on, on the episode. Like. I love that side of you. It's a, uh, it's a bloody inspiring side and yeah, it, it it's, um, yeah, it's nice. And, uh, and, and I appreciate it.
Yeah, no worries, mate. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. Have a have a good day, Jules. Uh, what are you up to? Uh, I'll go for another jog soon. So back to double running. So I stay inside. Like you can get real cooked this time of year if you're trying to run twice and hang out in the sun. So just play with Pia for a bit. Play with Pia is my new hobby. Yeah, yeah. Hey, uh, what's your what's your favorite shoe to, to go jogging in at the moment? Um, probably the Nike Invincible still. Still. Yeah. Yeah, it's double day shoe. It's nothing better. How many pairs of them have you gone through? Uh, I think I'm on my fifth pair now, but I'm due for another one. <laughs> All right, pair number six. Jesus, I'm a heavy, I'm a heavy man. I go, I can crush them. I wonder if anyone else in in Australia has gone through six pairs of Invincibles. Yeah, I don't know. If yeah, obviously I can turn them over a bit quicker because I have the running store. Um, yeah, but I still that's still the shoe I look to when I go out for an easy run. Awesome. Hey, yeah. Thanks again, mate. Really appreciate it. Um, I'll let you get going. Probably taken up an hour more of your time than, than we thought we would. But yeah, really appreciate every every minute of that, mate. It was um, full of gems. Yeah, thanks for having me.